think in 50 years, you'll just be that big. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's pretty exciting, That's pretty isn't it? Mm -hmm. Little. Well, I have a, a report. Our viewership was down this week. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we only had 7,500,000. What happened? Well, we've been studying the data, and it looks like we did not show enough close-up images of Peugeot. What? I know. <laughs> Who says that? The experts. The experts. Mm -hmm. They say. They mm -hmm. say. Yeah, they don't say So, they say. could we get a close-up on her, please? See so if we really? get our numbers back up. You know, the week before, we were at 11,400,000. 11, yep. We're clear down 7 million. That's still a lot. That's not a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. When, when you've been over 10, I don't know, right here it gets you. <laughs> Does it get you right now? Yeah, so we're going for 10 this time. Okay. Okay? Get a real good close-up. We did. Tight, we did. Touch. Oh, oh, that's nice. Could you look right at the camera? Oh, 15 million. That's my prediction. <laughs> that's really good. Make me blush. Okay. So... We're going to do a little different today than we normally do because usually I do a lot of talking, but we're making a real push to get ratings, so I'm going to let her talk this time. Okay. You ready? Yeah, ready. Okay. We have a question. Okay. What is it? It is from um, Bentley in Mississippi, mm -hmm. and he wants to know, actually... Excuse me. I don't know if it's a he or she. They want to know if... It, what nitric oxide is. Nitric oxide? Yeah. Well, can't you ask a question about this water here in front of me? Yes, I can ask that one too. Can't, can't we court? All right, <laughs> nitric oxide. So nitric oxide we've talked about, haven't we? Mm -hmm. So that's a fair question. So first there's air. And I was going to show you, but it's hard to get a good picture of air. Okay. So I'll just tell you, it's here. And <laughs> okay. if you want to fan yourself, you can fill it. Yeah, that's air. Okay. And air is atoms floating around like a gas. We call it a gas because the atoms aren't very close together. Right? If they were really close together, then it would be a crystal. In fact, I just happen to have a crystal here. Look at this. Look at that. Can you see this? I can. This is a bunch of, oh, 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 there it comes, uh, LEDs. Do you see it? And if you think of these as though they were little atoms, when all the atoms come together in order, like little soldiers all lined up, then it becomes a solid. They're very close together, very tightly packed. And ice would be an example of a crystal or a solid, okay? If you let ice melt, it becomes a liquid. And that means the atoms are still fairly close together, but they're not in a strict crystal form formulation like this. Okay. 
and then water can evaporate and become a gas, and then they're not in any formation at all. They just float around in the air. So in air, we have different kinds of atoms. And it turns out there's a lot of different kinds of atoms in air. But mostly there's just two. And, and I'm kind of excluding water. Water is there sometimes when we have humidity, sometimes there's less water. But beyond the water vapor, we have oxygen and nitrogen, two gases. Okay. Oxygen, well, we pretty well know what that is. We're having good oxygen today. <laughs> we breathe oxygen, don't we? we do. If you put a piece of wood on a fire at a camp out and it burns, mm -hmm. it's the wood combining with the oxygen that causes the fire. And wood, which is fuel, and oxygen join together so fast, they create heat, there's a flame, and the water, excuse me, the oxygen is turned into carbon dioxide because the carbon comes from the wood, oxygen from the air, and it forms CO2, which is exactly the same thing that happens inside our bodies. We breathe in oxygen. We eat food that has carbon in it. Mm -hmm. And in each individual cell, we have little campfires that are so small, there's no flame, but the carbon reacts with the oxygen and forms CO2. And the CO2 then is carried from the blood to the lungs, and that's what we breathe out. Can you see the CO2? <laughs> oh, I can't yeah, see it's it. there. And so we breathe in oxygen, we breathe out CO2. CO2, remember, is the fizz and soda pop, right? Okay, so he was asking not about CO2. No. He was asking about... Nitric oxide. Nitric oxide. Besides oxygen, the other thing in air is nitrogen. Mm -hmm. Nitrogen is, is what chemists call an inert gas. It doesn't react with other things. Oxygen reacts with anything that's combustible. Mm -hmm. But nitrogen doesn't react. But it doesn't always live up to that rule. Sometimes it gets distracted and it reacts a little bit. If you get it up above about 2,400 degrees, then it reacts with oxygen even. And so a lightning bolt or the flame inside of a combustion engine like a gasoline car causes some of the nitrogen from air to react with some of the oxygen. And then it forms... No. N-O. Nitric oxide. No. <laughs> no. No. I have a little sample. Can you see that? I can. That is a sample of a nitric oxide molecule. So which one is the nitrogen and which one is the oxygen? Do I get to choose? Or yeah, is there you, get, you, you can go ahead and choose. It's nitrogen. No? Nitrogen. Nitrogen. Okay, so <laughs> we'll say that it's black. Now, it doesn't matter because okay. we, we don't really have color like this in atoms. We just have them here so we can keep track of them. But one nitrogen reacts with one oxygen uh -huh. and forms nitric oxide, NO. Okay. And this is 
something that comes out of the exhaust of, a, of an engine, a car engine. And it's something that can be harmful. We call it an air pollutant. Uh, it's especially been a problem in places like Southern California, where you have millions of cars, and you have it in an air basin, and you also have a lot of sunshine. And the reason that the two don't go well together is because the car heats up the oxygen and the nitrogen that forms NO, mm -hmm. which then floats around in the air till the sun comes up, the sun shines on it, and it transforms NO into NO2. Can you see that? NO2. Now, there is one nitrogen still, but it reacts with an additional oxygen from air. And that's called nitrogen dioxide. Nitrogen dioxide is a brown gas, and it's nasty. Brown gas. Brown. Is it literally that's, brown? That's like it's the color. Yeah. Okay. You can make nitric oxide. I have made it in my chemistry laboratory. On purpose? I originally was trying to make hydrogen. <laughs> if you put hydrochloric acid mm -hmm. and zinc together, it bubbles off hydrogen. I didn't know that. Yes, it did. That's the laboratory way to make hydrogen. <laughs> so you take a little bit of even dilute hydrochloric acid, drop in some zinc metal pieces, and it bubbles off hydrogen. And you can fill balloons and different things. So I figured if that worked, then other things would work. Well, I tried some nitric acid. And instead of zinc, I tried a little copper, because I had some. And this brown gas came off. And I smelled it, and it was not hydrogen. <laughs> hydrogen <laughs> is odorless. Mm -hmm. This brown gas that came off, I smelled it the chemistry way. I mean, the amateur way is you just, <laughs> the chemist way is you go like this. Because not everything should be smelled too carelessly. But I smelled it, and it was, it was terrible. It, it was terrible. Like? It smelled like it was burning my nose. It was bad, like my nose was on fire. So look at this. You've got nitrogen dioxide, two oxygens and one nitrogen. Remember, this is air. Air is oxygen and nitrogen. It turns out that most of air, like 80% of it, is nitrogen. Just 20% is oxygen. I'm rounding that a little bit. But once they combine like this, it's a whole different property. And when you smell this, it gets in your nose, and inside the nasal passage, you have a little bit of moisture. When this reacts with water, it turns into nitric acid. So when you breathe it, you make nitric acid in your nose. Not a good thing. This, this is bad stuff. Please do not breathe it. <laughs> okay. It's very bad stuff. Nitrogen dioxide, it smells terrible, it's poisonous, it burns up, it's awful. So that's what it is. He asked, what is NO? Was nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is one and one. It's like this. This is what comes out of the engine. But it turns into this automatically in air. It takes a little help from the sun. And this is bad stuff, and we have to be careful with it. Can I show one other? Mm -hmm. Of course, time? this is your show. No, no, it's yours. <laughs> no, it's this yours. is your show. Well, then can I show two others? Okay. <laughs> Look at these. Look at these guys. This one 
Uh, can you see that? It's a little hard. I need to put it against a nice back. No. <laughs> Maybe if I hold it up here. Okay, one of these has two nitrogens and one oxygen. Okay. Remember the other one, where'd it go? This one had one nitrogen and two oxygens. This one has two nitrogen and one oxygen. So they're just kind of the opposite. Uh -huh. And this one has the same. The difference is the bonds resonate between each other. So the same molecule kind of is both of these, okay. this one molecule. And it has a name too. What is this it? is called nitrous oxide. So we're getting real confused. All of these three molecules, I'm gonna put them down here on this table and maybe we can see them a little better. There we go. Mm -hmm. So that's a happy molecule. All of these molecules are made of oxygen and nitrogen. Oxygen, nitrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. And yet, they all have very, very different chemical properties. This one, if you breathe it, it'll make acid inside your nasal passage and it'll burn like crazy and, and could be very dangerous to your health. These two are the same thing, they're in a resonant form. The bonds resonate back and forth between the two. It's called nitrous oxide. And this one, some of you know about, because it also has a nickname, and its nickname is laughing gas. So I said it's happy molecule. Ha <laughs> 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 Are you breathing this? <laughs> no. <laughs> Nitro sometimes when people go to the dentist and they're not ready to cope with everything that happens at the dentist, they give you a little mask with some nitrous gas, a nitrous oxide. I've never done that. <laughs> and then you're quite relaxed. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And uh, you don't really care whether they're drilling your teeth or not. Mm -hmm. So these two, they're the same thing. One has two oxygens, one nitrogen. One has two nitrogens, one oxygen. But they are so much different chemically in the way they react. And you know, there's a real important lesson to learn from this. All of these atoms are exactly the same thing. They're protons and neutrons in the nucleus with an electron or more going around the outside. And how many protons and electrons, and those two are always the same, how many they have determines how it behaves. So you add one more proton to the nucleus, one more electron, and it's a whole different critter. And then how you put these together, how many, in a particular little, when you've got a group of atoms, we call it a molecule, changes how they behave again. The science of chemistry is learning how to put different kinds of atoms together to get different kinds of results. And there are so many amazing things you can make. In the organic chemistry laboratory, we do experiments with a lot of molecules that are made up primarily of carbon and hydrogen with maybe a little bit of uh, sulfur or something else in them. And it's interesting, you learn how to make different chemicals by combining those same ingredients, those organic ele uh, elements or the elements of organic compounds. And all of a sudden, you've got something that doesn't smell, doesn't smell, you put them together and it smells like a beautiful flower or it feels like, smells like the most awful skunk you've ever smelled. And it's just, 
how these are hooked together. Studying how molecules go together is an important part of science, and everyone needs to do some chemistry. We're right now working on a physical science course that is going to have both chemistry and physics in it because a lot of kids want to be introduced to both of those. And it's coming along very well, isn't it? It'll be available real soon. So what is nitrous oxide or nitrogen oxide? Well, it's oxygen and nitrogen that have been forced together by high temperature, and they form this unlikely little marriage because normally they float around in the air and they never combine. I will add one other thing. When lightning strikes, it heats up the air as it goes through, and it forms nitric oxide. The nitric oxide is in a very small quantity, but it then gets into the rain, and it rains down on our, our forests, on our fields, and provides nitrogen fertilizer, without which we wouldn't have all these beautiful plants on the earth. So it's an important chemical, okay? We have students studying chemistry right now. These aren't students. Panels. These are molecules. I know, but they like the way you explain it, real life. Really? Real Examples. life? These, mm -hmm. these aren't actually atoms. These are lots of atoms. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I know, and I got it wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you ready for the other question? Okay. Another question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready. It's from Cuba. Cuba. Student in Cuba. Hi. Once... I made ice colder by adding salt to ice to make gelato. So it's like an ice cream. <laughs> Why does salt make ice colder than it already is? Ice cream made of salt. <laughs> I don't think that's good. Yum. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that delicious? A lot of people have made ice cream using salt. Mm -hmm. If you mix up all the ingredients to make ice cream and it's runny, all you have to do to make it be ice cream is get it colder. The problem is it has to get colder than ice. So you can't put it in a bucket of ice and get it down to the temperature of ice and have it turn into ice cream. You have to get it colder than ice. And that's an interesting thing to do. I've got some ice, a couple buckets of ice here. And I also have a thermometer, which I can put over here, turn it on. And I'm going to turn it up to where it says temperature. And then I'm going to go ahead and stick this into my ice water and see if we can read what it says. And I'm going to maybe flip it into Fahrenheit because that's what we mainly use. Okay. It says the temperature of this water is right now about 37, 36 degrees. Okay, now I wanna, I wanna back up a minute. This is a voltmeter that measures voltage, and this is a piece of wire that I'm sticking in here, and the tip of the wire, the two wires are twisted together, and I'm sticking them in here, and I'm measuring temperature. We call this a thermocouple. And this works if the two wires happen to be made of different metals. And in this case, one of these wires is chrome and one is alumel, chrome alumel. And if you twist them together, you have a chrome alumel thermocouple, which means just by twisting two wires together, 
since the electrons in the outer shells are interacting in the way they do, it generates electricity. So I'm actually creating power. However, the voltage it generates is so small, it's very hard to detect. Only a very sensitive voltmeter can even sense it. You, you can't use it to light up an LED. It's not nearly enough light. But it's generating electricity. And the warmer the junction is, where they're twisted together, the more voltage it generates. So we calibrated the voltmeter. Now, by the way, I could go over here and put this just on plain old volts. Yeah, there's plain old volts. And now the voltage is so low that it, I can't even detect this micro voltage with this voltmeter. But I'll go back to temperature again. And now I can get back on Fahrenheit. Okay, so we're about 35 degrees. So as it gets warmer, these two wires that are twisted together give off more electricity, and we measure it higher, and this voltmeter has been calibrated to read out in degrees Fahrenheit, and if I hit the select button, it'll also read in degrees centigrade. And I'm two degrees centigrade. Remember, ice melts in centigrade at zero degrees. In Fahrenheit, Water freezes at 32 degrees, right? Mm -hmm. And this is saying, oh look, two degrees. Since this is ice water, it should be zero. And that says this really affordable meter <laughs> is plus or minus 5%. So it's not real accurate. That's why I brought this one. That now one, this one is, this should be called the web. The web? Telescope, yes. Oh. <laughs> because this one measures temperature by measuring infrared oh, light, yeah. okay? Has a little laser beam in here that shoots out a signal. Now, don't look at this because I don't want to shoot. No, I don't want to oh. shoot you. So I'm going to see wow. if I can put, maybe I'll do it left hand. I'm going to shoot this on my hand and hopefully we'll see a little circle there. Can you see that? That little circle is so that I can see where I'm taking the temperature. Right now I'm taking it with my hand. And so on the back of here is a, a little readout telling me what temperature it is. So I'm going to pull the trigger and take a readout of the ice. Uh, and if we can see it there, can you see what it's saying? It's saying 31.0 degrees. Oh, so it's right around that 32 of where ice turns to liquid water, okay? Now, the question coming to us from Cuba mm -hmm. is how can we make this water colder? Right. How can we make the water colder? And we've got salt. If we put salt in the water, what's going to happen? Now, some of you have been doing this experiment at home, maybe getting ready for the science fair, which is coming up soon. When you get ice freezing on your sidewalk or on your windshield, you put salt. Mm -hmm. yep. And it melts the ice. Yeah. Why? How does it do that? And it turns out that Salt water 
freezes at a lower temperature than pure water. And the more salt you add, the lower the temperature at which it, it will melt. So a little bit of salt will make it so that you can melt ice at a much lower temperature than pure water ice like comes from rain. Now here's where it gets really interesting. If we can come back over to our, our lattice, and we go, there we go, there we go. See the lattice, these little atoms all lined up. And remember, these are representing water molecules that are in a crystal form. They've, they've actually become ice, which means the different atoms have all got into very straight lines and hooked together very, very tightly. When water gets into the solid phase, the crystal phase, it actually requires the energy to be very, very low in order for it to fit in that phase. And when it comes out of that phase, you have to supply energy to melt it. And this is where there's something kind of unintuitive that we can learn about ice from science. And it's the things that are unintuitive. That means it's not what you guess. Mm -hmm. It's those things that really empower us to make big inventions and big discoveries. So if you say, okay, salt water melts at a lower temperature, so I've got ice on my sidewalk. I put salt on it. It's going to melt it unless it's, you know, the North Pole and super cold. It's going to melt it. And you say, okay, that's intuitive. Salt water, salt makes the water melt at a lower temperature. But here's the part that isn't intuitive. If you have ice water, like we have here, and I add salt to it, it's going to melt the ice. Because salt water makes ice melt at a lower temperature. That part's intuitive. It's the next part that isn't intuitive. And if you can get this, you're going to get something real neat. Here comes the next part. The next part is before the ice can melt, it has to get energy. To turn the solid into liquid, it has to get energy. And so where does it get it? It gets it right here from the water. And if it starts pulling energy magically out of, the, out of the water, it's going to cool it. So when I add salt, it should go colder than freezing. Now, can you see why? Because at that temperature, it's going to be liquid. But when it comes out of the crystal ice form, it needs energy to become a liquid, and so it just takes it from wherever it can get it. And that's what we're going to see in a minute when we look at an ice cream machine. When you put the salt around the ice, it starts to melt, and as it's melting, it's pulling heat, and it pulls it right out of your cream and makes ice cream. Should we try it? Okay, so we'll look at my, my meter here again. I think this one's pretty easy to see. See if I can get it right. There you go. So you can see where Let's, let's switch back to Fahrenheit. Most of us are used to that. So it's about 34 degrees. And actually, it's 32 right now. It's just this meter's a little bit off. And so here comes the salt. 
Salt goes in just a little bit. <laughs> just a little <laughs> bit. Look. And now we're going to ask Beige if she'd please do what she does so well. What is that? And stir oh. the mixture. She's starting to stir it. Can you see what's happening to the temperature? Oh, we're down to 29 and 30. And around and around it goes. You're doing nice really good. Stirs, I pulled it out from here. Okay, let's see what we got. Did it go below 30? Whoa, look at that, 27. It's going down. So with the salt, the ice is melting. And as the ice melts, and goes into liquid form, it's pulling energy, it's pulling it out of the water, and lo and behold, we see the temperature dropping. Let's confirm it with our other sensor. And this is now saying that it's 26 degrees. Yep. A little hard to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially, there, tilted just right. Look okay. at that, let's clear down to 22, 23 degrees. So we've confirmed that it does get colder when you put salt in the water. Of course, if I get out of this salty water and put it in the regular water, it'll go right back to 34. I'd like to look at the video of how you can use this to make ice cream. I can use the fact that salt melts ice. When ice melts, it pulls heat. Let's roll it. Oh, listen to the sound effect. So you put it in there, your cream's in the middle, you put ice around the outside, there it goes, and then you start cranking it. But you have to put salt on the ice. I think they forgot to show us that. And when you do, mm, you get ice cream. That was really fast. <laughs> that, was, now, that, that was really fast. The first time I did that, uh -huh. I made ice cream, and I put the ice around there, and I didn't know about the salt. <laughs> and that's how I developed these wonderful muscles. <laughs> you just kept going. But it didn't matter how long I turned it, it never even started to freeze. Aww. But when you put the salt there, so that's like ice without science. Yeah. It doesn't work. There's got to be a lot of really interesting science fair project opportunities with just this phenomena that heat causes this. Now, I want to talk about a, a thing that's a little bit related. I have a beautiful uh, little beaker which is made, is full of a substance called copper sulfate. Copper, you know, is kind of reddish, but when it reacts with a sulfate radical like sulfuric acid, then it becomes this beautiful blue color. And copper sulfate is quite interesting because you can make a solution of copper sulfate, which is kind of blue, and then you can grow crystals. It's kind of like growing the ice crystals, only in this case, you're growing these beautiful, beautiful blue crystals, some of the most beautiful crystals there are. And if anyone would like to grow some crystals, um, this is a, a great science fair project to do. I will say that copper sulfate is used for a lot of things, but one of the places that I've encountered it is at scow camp, they put a little bit of copper sulfate in the fishing pond because it keeps the moss from growing. Mm. So chemicals have these wonderful properties. But there's something about growing um, 
crystals that you have to kind of understand. Let's, let's say we wanted to grow crystals. Well, what we'd do, first of all, we'd have to dissolve this copper sulfate in water. And we have to get what a scientist refers to as a super saturated solution. That means you get as much copper sulfate dissolved as possible. And so to do that, we start out by using hot water. Hot water will dissolve a lot more copper sulfate. So we put in as much as it will dissolve when it's hot. And then when it starts to cool down, it can't hold as much. So pretty soon it gets to the point where the copper sulfate wants to come out of the water because the water can't hold that much. And when it's at that point, we call it supersaturated. And that's when it's going to start forming crystals. Interestingly, though, to really be able to get those crystals to grow, they need a place for the molecules of copper sulfate to rest, to land, to connect. They need a place to connect. And so when we grow crystals, we get a little teeny crystal of copper sulfate, and usually we suspend it from a little string like a fishing line and drop it in something like a toothpick to hold it, and then the crystals will grow around it. And it starts putting those molecules on one at a time. Let's look at how we make copper sulfate crystals. Here we go. We're now going to make a supersaturated solution. So we get hot water, and we put in a ton of copper sulfate, and we stir it, we make that beautiful blue color. And then we're just going to, oh, there's our seed. A little teeny piece of copper sulfate crystal, and we lower it down into the solution, and we wait for two hours, and lo and behold. That's fast. We do this day after day, and look how it's growing. And it has to have that little seed, the little seed for it to work on. Did you realize that's how water works in the air, too? When we have, and, and this gets into something I think I'd like to talk about a little bit more than today, but I'll, I'll start it today. We are operating under a lot of pressure today because of the air pushing down on us, air pressure. Every square inch of our body is being mashed by about 14.6 pounds of air pressure. It's all the atmosphere pushing down on us. And lo and behold, we say there's a, a high coming in or a low. They say, this is the weatherman. You know, there's a high pressure, a low pressure. In an airplane, when we're ready to take off, we check with the, the, the weather report, and they tell us what the barometric pressure is. And we have a little instrument, so we set the barometric pressure. When we get the barometric pressure set right on our gauge, then our altimeter tells us exactly the height we are at that airport. And that'll keep us accurate as we fly, so we'll always know where our height is. But the density, the pressure of air changes throughout different days as the weather changes. So lo and behold, when you have um, moisture evaporating into the air, the relative humidity is going up. Remember we talked about relative humidity is the amount of moisture that's being held 
as vapor in the air compared to the amount that it could hold at that temperature. If you get a lot of moisture in the air and then the temperature drops, you get to a supersaturated point where all of a sudden the water vapor wants to turn to liquid. And when it gets supersaturated, then it needs that little seed so it has a place for the molecules to start to collect. It could be a little teeny speck of dust. It could be a tiny, tiny ice crystal. But it needs something, and even a tiny micro droplet of water, it needs something. And then it starts growing, and it'll form a raindrop, and it'll eventually fall. Uh, when you get a saturated air, but it's not raining, we actually seed clouds. And what that means is we take something, this little par particles, we fly up in an airplane and we put them in the cloud and then the water starts collecting and falls out. So when you have a drought condition, you need what? That's kind of a neat thing to look at. That's really neat. You want to see that? I do. All right, let's see it. <laughs> there it is. So here's an airplane and it's dropping seeding agent in a cloud that has uh, a supersaturated condition, so the water wants to come out. It just needs something to form around, and these little droplets then gather around the seed, in this case a little piece of dust, until the droplet gets so heavy that the air going up can't hold it up, and it starts falling down, and we call it rain. It's neat. It is neat. And all of these things are controlled by science. And there are things that we can study and we can do in our science fair projects. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, one of our students is experimenting with the hydrogen water bottle. And her experiment is quite interesting. If you put tap water into a hydrogen water bottle and then you turn on the hydrogen and let it bubble and you make hydrogen water, what does it do to the chlorine? There is chlorine in our tap water to make sure that we don't build up bacteria. And it's good we don't drink water full of bacteria because it can make us sick. But on the other hand, it's not great drinking chlorine because it's kind of poisonous. So some people have chlorine filters. Well, this student's hypothesis is, what does the hydrogen do to the chlorine? If you bubble the water that has chlorine in it for three minutes, does the hydrogen remove the chlorine? And so that's the Science Fair project. And those of you that uh, will be watching the Science Fair results will know very soon. We'll have a great chance to see that. I have to smile about this particular student because she's got everything ready to go and she's been finding uh, test samples to prove how much chlorine is in the water. And she's got the hydrogen bottle, and she's all ready to go. And uh, her teacher says, so do you want to just try it and, and see how it works? She says, no, no. I want to wait until I'm all ready to film it so that when I get the result, I can have my natural, honest reaction <laughs> on camera. That's, that's good uh -huh. to have. <laughs> and since she is a past science fair winner, that could be a secret. <laughs> Our natural, honest My reaction. My natural, honest reaction. <laughs> science is such a fun subject. And the science fair is a wonderful time of the year. And we're coming down to the last few weeks to get your projects together. 
So if you haven't clicked on that science fair button on the Cellus interface, you ought to do it and, and get yourself set up to win some great prizes. This year we'll be inaugurating for the very, very first time the United States Army Hawkins uh, Recognition or Award. And we had the privilege tonight of seeing that beautiful award. It's, it's going to be really something to win. I'm just wishing I could uh, enter for that one. I, what would I make? I would probably make a page A Android. Oh, goodness. <laughs> we may not need one of those. Yeah. See you next time.